All right, so if you're a Christian, meaning you're a Christ follower, you've given your life to Jesus, uh, you've accepted and, and received this free gift of salvation that, that he has placed on the table in front of you, um, all you got to do is just own it and say, yeah, look, I'm a sinner, I need you, Jesus, and I'm receiving that free gift of salvation. That's it. It really isn't complicated. Um, it, it's not about your, your, your behavior in that sense. Um, you, you're never going to be good enough. Let's just take that off the table. You'll never be good enough, okay? Um, that shouldn't be a discouragement for you. That should be an encouragement for you. Uh, that doesn't mean you stop being good, okay? <laughs> Don't take it the other way. Um, but you, you can't earn it, and, and it's just a free gift that's there. Uh, and, and so for Christians, and, and especially the past, I don't know, like 20 or 30 years, there was this idea that's kind of permeated within the church that once you give your life to Jesus, like, you're good. Like, everything's going to be okay in your life. And in fact, like, there's this faith thing that, um, man, you just got to walk through this life uh, and if you want something, you, you got to name that, you, you got you to gotta lay hold of that, you got to claim that. And, and it's almost like we, we turn Jesus into like this genie of the lamp kind of a deal, um, where we, you know, rub on the lamp and he poof, he comes out and it's like, okay, give me what I want, give me what I want, give me what I want. Make me happy, make me happy, make me happy. That is very American, that is very Western Christianity, which is not biblical Christianity. It's not biblical at all. Uh, you, I think, if anything, the, the American church needs desperately is really just to go back and start reading our Bibles again. Because the reality of following Jesus means this. There are going to be moments within your life where suffering is a part of following Jesus. And there are moments in that suffering. Suffering could be the best thing for you. It could be the, the thing that draws you closer to him than anything else. But yet... We, we, we like this fast food kind of mentality when it comes to Christianity of like, no, just, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, so just make everything in my life perfect and pleasing and good and no troubles and no worries and all this stuff. And he's like, that's not what you signed up for. That's not what being a Christian is. Being a Christian means suffering is a part of your life. Being a Christian means that discouragement will be a part of your life. Doubt will be a part of your life. I hate this notion that if you ever doubt, then you're not saved. That's, a, that's an attack from the enemy. My goodness, the, the greatest minds within Christianity have all had seasons of doubt. They've all had seasons of doubt. They've all had seasons of discouragement. They've all had times within their lives where they just wanted to give up and I'm done. I can't take this anymore. I've failed you. All that. Every, I can promise you, every, every hero of the faith that I have, whether it be a Charles Spurgeon or J.C. Ryle or whoever else, I mean, the list goes on and on. Even a Chuck Smith. Every single one of those people, those individuals, have all had moments of discouragement. It's a part of walking with Jesus. The earlier we come to that realization within our relationship with Jesus, the better it is for us. You're going to walk through discouragement. You're going to have nights in your walk with Jesus where you're like, man, Lord, I, I have failed you 
and I'm just no good to you anymore. I think I'm done. I think I'm done. But it's in those moments, it's in, it's in the darkest night, the darkest of the night where he comes alongside and say, he can come alongside you and say, look, you're not done. You're in fact, you're, you're right where I want you to be. And see, and that goes contrary to everything that I say a lot. I don't know. It seems like the past brief Ameri history within the American church that preachers would get up and tell you like, no, no, no. If you have a moment of discouragement, it means you don't have any faith. That's not true. If, if you're lacking or you got suffering in your life, it's because you don't have faith. That's not true. That's not true. Because what we're going to see, we're just going to be reminded of this again with the Apostle Paul, who I think probably had more faith than anybody, <laughs> you know, in one sense. And, and this is not the first time Paul has been, to, you know, driven to the point of just discouragement. This will be what we see in just a little bit. We're going to go through 23, probably 24. They all, it goes real fast. It goes, you're like, two chapters. It goes really fast. Um, Jesus shows up for like the fifth, the, the, in, this, in this context, the fifth of six times in Paul's life to encourage him. This is the Apostle Paul, the guy who was used by the Holy Spirit to write most of the New Testament. So I want to encourage you guys, if you're in a season of discouragement, what you need more than anything you just need to know that the Lord Jesus is with you. He is with you, but I don't feel him. Life's not about feelings. Praise God for when those feelings are there. But man, if I relied on those feelings, I'd be, I'd be uh, just a wreck. I'd be a wreck. I don't know if I'd be here today, honestly. We can't rely on feelings. I thank Jesus for giving us feelings and emotions and all that stuff. But that cannot be the, you know, the rudder that, that you know, drives the, you know, and navigates the, the ship of your life. Your emotions cannot be that. It cannot be that. But let's look. So just so you know, context-wise, Paul just got arrested. Um, the Jews tried to kill him because he mentioned Gentiles in his message to them. And uh, so they rebelled against him. They, they, you know, they wanted to, they, well, they were beating him before that. And then they, they didn't want to hear anything that he said because he mentioned the fact that Jesus has called them to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. And so now they're trying to riot again. And the, um, the guard who is over Paul is going to appeal to a higher authority, so to speak. Um, but he, he wants to lock him up. And before he sends him off to Felix, uh, there's going to be one. There's going to be one more trial in Jerusalem, and then Paul is done in Jerusalem. Okay, verse one of chapter twenty-three says this. Uh, actually, let's go verse thirty of twenty-two, um, just context-wise. The next day, the commander uh, ordered the the leading priests into um, session with the Jewish high council. Now, this is New Living Translation. I'm reading out of. He wanted to find out what the trouble was all about. What's, what's the deal? Why are you beating this man? And, and why, why are you guys, you know, kind of raising up this, this riot, so to speak? So he released Paul to have him stand before them. Verse 1 of 23, gazing intently at the high council, Paul began, Brothers, I have lived before God with a clear conscience. That seems like an okay thing to say. 
Like, I, I live before God, I live my life before God with a clear conscience. He did not say a perfect, sinless conscience. He said a clear conscience. He would, in fact, he would, he would say that, and I think it's in 2 Corinthians um, chapter 2, he would mention the fact that he served from a clear conscience. Meaning this, if the Holy Spirit spoke in his life, convicting him of something, then he received that. He owned it, is what I like to say. He repented of that and made it right. And that's just how he lived his life. The Holy Spirit showed up and the Holy, Holy Spirit showed up and encouraged him. He received that. The Holy Spirit showed up and, and convicted him. Then he dealt with it. He had a clear conscience. He didn't, he didn't have things, you know, kind of left over. He wasn't stacking up, you know, convictions and all that stuff. It was just like, I said this. I shouldn't have said that. I apologize. I'm sorry. And he moved on. Clear conscience. That's how he ran. He, he tells the high council. He addresses them as brothers, treating them as equals. I've always lived before God with a clear conscience. Instantly, verse 2, Ananias, the high priest, commanded those close to Paul to slap him on the mouth. Now, New Living Translation, not really a good, accurate translation on this. They struck him. The idea is they probably close-fisted, punched Paul straight in the mouth. Now, I'm sorry. I don't care how long you've been walking with the Lord, but the hood will come out, right? You're like, it doesn't take long. <laughs> Where it's like, dude, no, you don't touch me, okay? And you strike me in the face. I don't even like people touching my face. You strike me in the face, it's on. It's on. That's it. So I understand Paul's response. Now, Paul's reaction and response is not right. It is not right. Okay? What he says is correct. How he goes about addressing it is wrong. Okay? <laughs> I could learn a lot from this. Um, he just straight up just, just struck him right in the mouth. That is illegal, by the way. For Paul to be hit to be struck in the face, that's illegal. They broke the law by doing that. They broke the law. Paul responds. Um, New Living Translation, it, again, just does it probably different than how yours says it, but he says, God will slap you, you corrupt hypocrite. God will strike you down, you whitewashed wall. He, he, I mean, Paul just, blah, he just, I, yeah, like I, I would have done the same thing. Maybe a little bit more colorful language, but I would have said the same thing. Been like, how, how do you, where do you get off hitting somebody? Where in the world do you get off by punching somebody in the face? Who, who do you think you are? Well, we're dealing with a very corrupt, a very corrupt leader of the Jews at this point in time. Ananias, a very corrupt man. In fact, he was so corrupt. He was a Roman sympathizer. Uh, and it wouldn't be long after this story that the, his own people, the Jews, would rise up against him and kill him. This dude was wicked. He was wicked. And he demonstrated it. You know he's wicked by commanding those who are standing by Paul to perform an illegal act. I mean, it, he's just, it's on full display. This guy's a wicked man. And Paul's like, God's going to get you. May God strike you down. He goes on to say, what kind of judge are you to break the law yourself by ordering me to be struck like that? 
Those standing near Paul said to him, do you dare insult God's high priest? Paul responds, verse 5, I'm sorry, brothers, I didn't realize he was the high priest. Paul replied, for the scriptures say, well, we should skip this verse. No, no, the scriptures say, Exodus 22, verse 28 says, you must not speak evil of any of your rulers. Wow. Should I read it again? <laughs> you must not speak evil of any of your rulers. Okay. Ananias, wicked, corrupt. He's a, he's a ruler. He's in charge. He's in charge. Now, I mean, I don't, I know, I get our political climate. I know you may not like the guy who's in there right now. And we went through four years where this certainly was not um, honored for a guy who was a leader of our nation. And you should always respect your leaders of your nation. I don't care who they are. I don't care who they are. You shouldn't speak evil of any of your rulers. Yeah, but what? Don't. Here's the, here's the thing. So what, what do I do? You pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for them. I, look, pray for them. I, I get it. And we've had, and my, my goodness, just do some world history. And you will learn that there are some wicked and corrupt leaders that have been all, they, even on this, on, today, on this planet, there are wicked and corrupt rulers I know our brothers and sisters in Africa would have a hard time with this, with some of their wicked rulers. How about our brothers and sisters in China? But what do we do, man? Here's what we do. We say, all right, Lord, you go get them. Go get them. You shouldn't speak evil of any of your rulers. Now, when that was addressed, so we'll get there eventually on Wednesday nights with Exodus 22, um, there was a lot of evil speak, so to speak, um, concerning Moses and Aaron. The people were super upset with Moses and Aaron. The one that, I mean, God used these guys to lead them out of Egypt. And they were, they were talking, they were always talking smack about, about Moses and all this good stuff. And the, and the Lord says, look, you can't speak against your leaders. But this is, this, right, I mean, this, this could apply to all, all sorts of fronts. All sorts of fronts. Whether you're talking about religious leaders, that's probably the one I have the hardest time with, is religious leaders, because I'm not a political guy. I don't care that much about politics. I just don't. Um, I, have a, I have a harder time applying this when it comes to, like, the church world, because there are religious leaders that I just don't agree with at all. I don't agree with it all. And I have to control, I have to watch what I say. I do. But I'm guilty of this as well. But Paul owns it. He realizes, he, he, the thing is, he didn't even know that Ananias was a high priest. Probably because of his bad eyesight. He had, he had horrible eyesight. Paul did. He got sick on one of his missionary journeys, probably the first one. He ended up getting some sort of infection within his eye, messed up his vision probably for the rest of his life. He may not have physically been able to recognize who this guy was. He also has been away for about 20 years, and he doesn't realize that this guy's the high priest. The other thing is, this is a very impromptu trial. So Ananias is probably not dressed in his full garb 
okay, as the high priest. So he may not have just been able to discern the fact that, oh, this guy's the high priest. But he owned it. He said, he apologized. Because the guys are like, you can't talk to the high priest like that. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know he's a high priest. My bad. He owned it. That's a good thing. We just own it. <laughs> My goodness, just own it. I don't care. You don't have to like be best friends with the person or anything like that. You don't even have to agree with them. I know Paul didn't agree with this guy at all. But Paul was going to honor the word of God above all things. He was going to honor the word of God. And he was going to honor God through his actions. So he was going to make sure that he, when he spoke, and even if it was a corrupt, wicked individual, Paul was going to make sure, first and foremost, that he was honoring to God in his behavior and in his speech. We could probably camp out all day on that one, huh? You'd be like, no, nah, let's move on. Um, let's move on. I got to go delete some posts. No, just kidding. Um, just, just relax on that type of stuff. If anything, first and foremost, just be praying for your leaders. Just be praying for your leaders um, is what I would say. Um, don't, I, look, there's a lot of, with President Biden, um, there's a lot of, that dude, I don't, I don't like and I don't agree with at all. At all. At all. Like zero. Okay? But I'm not going to speak ill of him. I'm not going to speak ill of him. I'm going to pray for that guy. Because what that dude needs more than anything, he actually needs Jesus. I don't care if he's the most religious president we've ever had, whatever that means. Um, that dude needs Jesus. He needs Jesus. And what does America need most? They need their president to fall in love with Jesus and to be transformed by Jesus. I'm not saying anything's going to change, but man, that's what that dude needs because I don't know where he stands with the Lord, but it would and it would and it should break our hearts that if he dies and he goes to hell, that should break our hearts. That should break our hearts. So I get it. I know we live in turbulent times. I understand that, but man, Paul's, you know, when he's writing this, you you have you have some pretty wicked leaders as Paul is writing this letter, okay? And he will, in fact, go stand before one of the most wicked leaders ever, and Paul will end up having his head chopped off. And then Paul and Peter would all have the audacity to say, pray for your leaders. Pray for your leaders. So let's do that. Let's just pray for our leaders, okay? Verse 6 Paul realized that some of the members of the high council were Sadducees and some were Pharisees. So that's like um, super liberal and your super conservative theologians, all right? Like the liberal ones, the Sadducees, they don't believe in resurrection or anything like that. Um, the Pharisees on the other end believe in a resurrection, uh, but they go way more into like legalism and all that good stuff, okay? So of the same team, but on opposite sides. So Paul notices that both are represented within the room. So he knows that his trial is lost. It's lost. I mean, he just got punched in the mouth. And he's like, it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what I say. This thing's done. Any opportunity I had to share the gospel of Jesus Christ is now gone. It's gone. Dude hit me in the mouth, and I've lost my audience. I've lost my audience. Just like the, the day before when he mentioned Gentiles, he lost the audience. 
So he's analyzing the crowd. He sees there's some Pharisees, there's some Sadducees, and he shouts out, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, as were my ancestors. I am on trial because my hope is in the resurrection of the dead. He knew that that was going to be the stick of dynamite that would set the whole thing off. Okay? This divided the council of the Pharisees against the Sadducees, Sadducees, for the Sadducees, Sadducees say there is no resurrection or angels or spirits. And there, that's where you insert your little pastor joke. That's why they're sad, you see, right? You get it? Because there's no resurrection. It's like, oh, we're just here, we live, and we die, and that's it. Um, well, that's a sad life. Uh, but the Pharisees are like, no, we believe in a resurrection, the Pharisees believe in all these things, verse 9. So there was a great uproar. Some of the teachers of religious law who were Pharisees jumped up and began to argue forcefully. We see nothing wrong with him. So now they're coming to his defense. They shouted, perhaps a spirit or an angel spoke to him. As the conflict grew more violent, the commander was afraid they would tear Paul apart. So he ordered his soldiers to go and rescue him by force and take him back to the fortress. Right? So Paul's like, this is a lost cause. Like the stick of dynamite, boom, watch the whole thing explode. I'm out of here because I got to get to Rome because I don't, I don't stand a chance in Jerusalem. I don't stand a chance here. He really wanted to go to Jerusalem. He got to Jerusalem and everything that had been told him about Jerusalem came true. And what he wanted more than anything was to share Jesus in Jerusalem. And he didn't he did the one, you know, the outside with, he shared about his testimony, how he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. That's awesome. That was really cool. But now he has, a, he has this really, really phenomenal audience in front of him. All the religious leaders. This was the audience that he wanted. But he can't even get started. I mean, he says one sentence and the guy punches him in the face. And he's like, okay, it's over. It's over. So I'm just going to... Let's just, I'm just going to get out of here. So he gets locked back up. Verse 11, here's your, here's your encouragement. That night the Lord appeared to Paul and said, Be encouraged or be of good cheer, Paul. Just as you have been witness to me here in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome as well. This is super encouraging. Here's Jesus showing up in, for the fifth time in Paul's life. There will be one more time for the fifth time in his life, to show up on the darkest of nights as Paul, what, he's discouraged. How do we know that? Because why would Jesus tell him to be encouraged? He doesn't show up and say that to somebody who's happy, you know, who's having the best day of their life. He's like, yeah, be encouraged. You're like, oh, I'm already there. He's like, oh, I didn't realize that. Um, no, it's Jesus we're talking about. Paul is discouraged because he had an audience that he wanted, but yet he didn't even get to, to get the message out. And so he probably feels like a failure. Do you have a target audience in your life and you want nothing more than to get the gospel out to these people? And every time you do, it's like you're getting slapped in the face. And you can't seem to get the message out to that person or to those people. Welcome to the Apostle Paul's life. Welcome to a night of discouragement. But be of good courage. Be encouraged. Because on those dark nights, the Lord Jesus knows how to show up by your bedside and stand right next to you. Hold your hand. Pat you on the back. And say, hey, good job. Well, I felt. No, good job. 
no, Jesus, you don't get it. I, I didn't accomplish what I wanted to accomplish. I didn't accomplish what I set out to accomplish. And he says, good job. You represented me in Jerusalem. Now you're going to go to Rome. You want nothing more in your life than to get to this one destination, Rome? You're going there, buddy. Hey, by the way, good job in Jerusalem. Good job. No, but I didn't. See, I had it planned out in my brain. Like, this is how it's all going to work out. And it did not work out like that at all. And Jesus says, that's cool. That's all right. Just as you have been a witness to me here in Jerusalem, Paul, you were a witness to me in Jerusalem. It may not have been how you thought you were going to be a witness. It may not have gone the way you thought it was going to go. But for the Apostle Paul, he did represent Jesus. He did represent him. And Jesus came alongside him and says, hey, thank you so much. Good job. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Now let's finish this race. Now let's finish this race. You must preach the good news in Rome as well. Jesus was not done with the Apostle Paul. Paul may have felt like Jesus was done with him. Paul may have been ready to sign his resignation letter and all that good stuff, but Jesus was not done with him. He says there's, there's something else to be done. There's more to be done. I would encourage you, if you're in a season of discouragement right now, that you would realize that the Lord Jesus is not done with you. You wouldn't be here today if he was done with you. You wouldn't have rolled out of bed if he was done with you. We'd be planning your memorial service if he was done with you. But you're still alive, which means he still has something for you. Okay? So, soak this in, embrace this, that Jesus, when he even commissioned all his disciples with the great commission from Matthew chapter 28, he says, lo, I, lo, I will be with you to the end, the end of the world, in all places, at all times, I will be with you, even on those dark nights where you don't feel him, he's still there with you. And what he's whispering to you is the same thing he whispered to the Apostle Paul. Hey, good job. Now let's go to Rome. Now let's go to Rome. Okay, so don't sign off your resignation letter. Don't cash in before it's too early. Don't give up on him because he's not giving up on you. Pack your bags and get ready for Rome. Get ready for Rome because you're probably going the next day. So here's Paul in jail, and all the time he's going through this dark night, people are plotting to kill him. Look at, look at the plan that's going on here. Verse 12, the next morning a group of Jews got together and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. They're pretty serious about this. <laughs> like, they are, they are bound and determined to take this guy out. There were, there were more than 40 of them in the conspiracy they went to the leading priests and the elders and told them, we have bound ourselves with an oath to eat nothing until we, we have killed Paul. So you and the high council should ask the commander to bring Paul back to the council again. Pretend you want to examine his case more fully. We will kill him on the way. Okay? So they got this whole plan and they're going to, basically they're taking a curse upon themselves. If we don't accomplish this, then may God curse us. This is a pretty serious plan that they have they're constructing it just so happens that paul's nephew who we never hear about 
We never hear about any of his family, but it just so happens that his nephew happens to be in Jerusalem when this secret meeting is going on, and he overhears this very secret meeting. We don't even know if his nephew lives in Jerusalem. We don't even know why this kid's there. But God's in control. And even on their plots to harm you, God's in control. He's in control. He's in charge. Oh, you got a plan. You got 40 of you guys. You want, oh, you think you're honoring me by wanting to kill my servant. Okay, let's see how that works out for you guys. Nobody notices the little kid eavesdropping on the whole conversation? Of course not. Verse 16, but Paul's nephew, his sister's son, heard their plan and went to the fortress and told Paul. Paul called for one of the Roman officers sorry, and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something important to tell him. Of course he has something important to tell him. Paul's like, look, you, this is top secret information. So the officer did explaining, Paul the prisoner called me over and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took his hand, led him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? So being very gentle with this, this kid, this, this young man. We don't, I don't even know how old this, this guy is. So Paul's nephew told him, some Jews are going to ask you to bring Paul here before the high council tomorrow, pretending they want to get some more uh, information. But don't do it. There are more than 40 men hiding among the way, ready to ambush him. They have vowed not to eat or drink anything until they have killed him. They are ready now, just waiting for your consent. Don't let anyone know you told me this, the commander warned the young man. So now he's going to rally his troops. Now it's time to get Paul out of Jerusalem to safety. Number one, because of this, um, probably as far as this commanding officer is concerned, he can't have a Roman citizen die at the hands of the Jews on his watch. He can't have, that can't happen. That can't happen, right? He would lose his job immediately. So this is a little bit of an act of job security. Like all these, all these guys are super upset with this one man. I need to get him out of here and I need to, need to get him to safety. And also, you know what? I need to wash my hands clean of this and, and kind of put this responsibility onto somebody else who has more authority than I do. Verse 23, the commanding officer called his, uh, his officers and ordered, get 200 soldiers ready to leave for Caesarea at 9 o'clock tonight. Also take 200 spearmen and 70 mounted troops 470 soldiers total. This is quite the escort. That's got to be an impressive sight, okay? Provide horses for Paul to ride and get him to, safely to Governor Felix. Then he wrote this letter to the governor. I, this letter is, is comical. Um, it's pretty funny. From Claudius Lysias, right? That's his name, to his excellency, Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by some Jews and they were about to kill him when I arrived with the troops. You can just visualize this, right? When I stepped in and saved him bravely. Uh, when I learned, when I learned he was a Roman citizen, I removed him to safety. Well, that's not true. You learned he was a Roman citizen when you were about to beat him. And he played that Roman card on you as you got him already stretched out to get beat. That's, he's going to leave out those details, as you would too, if you're writing to your superior about how you just uh, were the hero of the day, right? You're like, oh, I kind of caused some of this. Uh, no, you just scratch that from the record. Look, I found out he was a Roman citizen, and I stepped in. Verse 28, then I took him 
to their high council to learn the basis of the accusations against him. I soon discovered the charge was something regarding their religious law, certainly nothing worthy of imprisonment or death. But when I was informed of a plot to kill him, I immediately sent him on to you. I have told uh, his accusers to bring their charges before you. So that night, <clears throat> remember, uh, this is now this is like a, a few nights into this deal. That night, as ordered, the soldiers took Paul uh, as far as Antipatris, which is about 40 miles from Jerusalem. And they returned to the fortress the next morning while the mounted troops took him on to Caesarea. When they arrived in Caesarea, they presented Paul uh, and the letter to Governor Felix. He read it and then asked Paul what providence, province he was from, Cilicia, Paul answered. I will hear your case myself when your accusers arrive, the governor told him. Then the governor ordered him to be kept in prison at Herod's headquarters, okay? So now we're just going to go right into this little trial because it really happens in succession. It just happens, like in about five days, everybody shows up and you got this whole courtroom scenario going on. But the, the plot to kill Paul is made known through a supernatural means. This is God intervening, you know, with the nephew letting the, the commanding officer know, and he, rests, he gets Paul out of, that da- out of danger into, up to Caesarea, where now he can stand on trial before Felix, who is kind of ruling over this region. Just so you know this about Felix, um, he's the first, and as far as I know, the only slave to be appointed as a governor in Rome. Okay? Uh, his brother was, um, was well-liked within the Roman government, and uh, he kind of vouched for Felix, and Felix was, you know, was brought from a slave to a ruler. The problem is, this dude's wicked. The guy is, he's just as corrupt as can be. He didn't last long, of course not. Um, wicked and corrupt rulers don't usually last that long. Okay, and so at this point in time, as Paul, we're about to see in a second, Felix is, you know, has no real good moral character or anything like that. Um, he's on his... The, the wife he has now is the third wife, which he stole from another guy. Um, yeah, so uh, just, a, you know, just not an outstanding leader at all. But he will hear the case. He's going to hear the case. Because, well, he has to because it falls within his jurisdiction. Okay? So that's where you go right into verse 1 of 24. Five days later, Ananias, the high priest, arrived with some of the Jewish elders and a lawyer, uh, Tertullus, um, could, have been, uh, could have been a Roman lawyer or um, Hellenist, maybe, more than likely. But they got their lawyer, right? They got their guy. He had all those TV ads, you know, uh, during the day where he just yell and scream and all that good stuff. Um, so they hired this guy. And they presented, they're going to have him argue the case for them to present their case against Paul to the governor. When Paul was called in, uh, Tertullius presented these, the charges against Paul in the following address to the governor. This is comical. This is, this is what you would expect, okay? Um, he goes on to say, You have provided a long period of peace for us Jews, and with foresight have enacted reforms for us. For all of this, Your Excellency, we are very grateful to you. Right? So he's just like, Laying on the compliments, the compliments, the compliments of like, oh, you're such a great leader, oh, you're such a great ruler, and all the stuff, and it's like lies upon lies upon lies upon lies, okay? But he's just, you know, kind of sweeten the deal, so he, he maybe has a little bit of favor with this guy. 
He says, but I don't want you to, I don't want to bore you, so please give me your attention for only a moment. We have found this man to be a troublemaker who is constantly stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. Well, wait a minute, because I've read through the book of Acts, and uh, everywhere Paul went, the Jews were following him, stirring up the riots. Oh, no, no, but it's not their fault. It's Paul's fault. Okay, see how this works. All over the world, he's a ringleader of a cult known as the Nazarenes right? It's a cult. It's Christianity. It's a cult. That's what they were accused of back then. Furthermore, he was trying to desecrate the temple when we arrested him. You can find out the truth from your, uh, of our accusations by examining him yourself. Then the other Jews chimed in, declaring that everything Tertullius said was true. Yep, that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. No real, I mean, he, he brought up a charge of like, he's committed a crime against Rome, he's committed a crime against the Jews, and he's committed a crime against God. That was basically the three arguments, okay? With no witnesses, with no actual clarity on, you know, factual clarity on anything, very ambiguous, very ambiguous, right? They're not providing any details or anything like that. So the governor motions to Paul to speak. Verse 10, Paul says, I know, sir, that you've been a judge of Jewish affairs for many years, so I gladly present my defense before you. Paul's just like, this is a common greeting for a judge, okay? He's like, you've been ruling for a while. You get it. You know the deal with the Jews. So here's my case. You can quickly discover that I arrived in Jerusalem no more than 12 days ago to worship at the temple. My accusers never found me arguing with anyone in the temple, nor stirring up a riot in any synagogue or on the streets of the city. These men cannot prove the things they accuse me of doing. Paul's like, um, I just got there 12 days ago. Ask anybody. Ask anybody. I noticed that they didn't bring any witnesses, or they invited witnesses, but they just didn't show up that day. Um, but you can ask anybody, I got to Jerusalem on this day, went to the temple, didn't desecrate it at all, didn't cause any problems, didn't stir up any riots or anything, ask anybody. So that's Paul's defense. He's like, um, this is what I did, and you can ask anybody, and they'll tell you the same thing. Verse 14, but I admit that I follow the way. This is basically Paul saying, I do admit I am a Christian which they call a cult. I worship the God of our ancestors, and I firmly believe the Jewish law and everything written in the prophets. I have the same hope in God that these men have, that he will raise both the righteous and the unrighteous. Because of this, I always try to maintain a clear conscience, this is what got him punched in the mouth earlier, before God and all people. I just do what God tells me to do. I say what God tells me to say. And if I make a mistake, like, you know, yelling at the high priest, well, then I own it. I apologize for that, okay? I'm not a perfect man, but I have a clear conscience. You don't have to be a perfect person, because you're not going to be, but you can walk through this life with a clear conscience. If you make a mistake, you sin, own it, apologize, and move on, and move on. Be free. Be free within your mind. Be free. The greatest threat of imprisonment happens within your head. It's in your mind. Usually because we walk through this life and we're just adding on, adding on, adding on, adding on. And sometimes if it's sins, we're just compiling these things. Just own it. If you do something that is 
against God, that's what sin is, that going against something that he has said, hey, don't do this, or hey, do this, and you don't do that, but then you do this, just own it. Lord, I sinned against you. And here's specifically how I sinned against you. That's what I would tell everybody. You can say, Lord, please forgive me of my sins. That's okay. But I would say, Lord, please forgive me of this sin and this sin, and I'm going to name them. If I'm going to name and claim anything, it's going to be my sins. It's going to be my sins. Lord, I did this. I said this. I thought that. You told me to do this, and I didn't do that, and that's a sin. And that's a sin. Own it. Be clear. Have a clear conscience. Walk through this life unhindered. Lay aside every sin that so easily ensnares you, is what the author of Hebrews would say. Be free. Be free. The best way you can be free is just by clearing out the junk within your brain of saying, like, all right, Lord, um, man, I just, I'm just going to throw this all out there. Because why? Because I just want to clear conscience. That's all. That's all. I'm not a perfect person. I'll never be a perfect person. Not here on this planet. You stand before the Lord when it's all said and done. Then, you're, then you are perfect. You've been made perfect, right? There's no more sin or anything like that. But here on this planet, you're just as messed up as I am. We make mistakes. That's what we do. But the thing that should separate us, the thing that separates Paul from this group, well, number one is he's a believer in Jesus Christ. They are not. And Paul has a free conscience. He has a clear conscience. He doesn't have all the religious stuff weighing down on him. He's been free of all that stuff. It's like, I always try to maintain a clear conscience before God and all people. Verse 17, after several years away, I returned to Jerusalem with money to aid my people and to offer sacrifices to God. I wasn't doing anything wrong. I was bringing back money that we collected on the journey. This was like a humanitarian effort. They need, the church in Jerusalem needed money. The other churches raised up money for this church, and I just delivered it, and I was going to the temple to worship God. My accusers saw me in the temple as I was completing the purification ceremony. There was no crowd around me and no rioting, but some Jews from the province of Asia were there. They ought to be here to bring charges if they have anything against me. He's like, there were plenty of witnesses. Where are they at? Where are they at? They conveniently left those guys behind because it wouldn't help their case out at all. In fact, they have no case at all. Some of the Jews of the province were there. They ought to be here uh, to bring charges if they have anything against me. Ask these men here what crime the Jewish, uh, what crime the Jewish high council found me guilty of. Except for one time I shouted out, I am on trial before you today because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. So he kind of, he's like, going back to that previous trial, he's like, all right, there's this one time, like I said this, right? Shouldn't have said that. But that's what I said. He's like, but there's no charges they can bring up against me. At that point, Felix, was, who was quite familiar with the way, he was quite familiar with this Christian movement, adjourned the hearing and said, wait until Lysias, Lysias, if that's how you say his name, the garrison commander, this is the main guy, uh, arrives. Then I will decide the case. What's this guy going to offer? Nothing. Nothing. So this is like a delay tactic because he's like, 
I don't know what to do with this. I don't want to make the Jews mad because if I make them mad, then it's going to be worse for me. But this guy's clearly not guilty. And, I don't, and he's a Roman citizen. And so I can't do anything against him because he's innocent. And if he, then he'll appeal to the guy who's above me. And when they find that out, then I'm going to be in trouble on that end. So he's kind of stuck. So he's just trying to buy himself some time. He's like, well, let's get the commanding officer up here. Let's see what he has to say. Well, you have his letter. He said it all in his letter. All right. It's hard for politicians sometimes. It's hard for them sometimes, right, to make decisions and to actually say something with clarity or take a stand on something with clarity, right? Because they're like, well, if I say this, I'm going to upset them. But then I'll win the favor over here. But if I say this other thing, then I lose that and I may gain these. That's what a, I'm, my goodness, pray for your politicians. Pray for them. Um, pray for all those people. I, I don't know how they do it. Uh, that's, I don't know. Um, <laughs> agreed. Um, I didn't say that. No, I'm just, um, it, this is who, he's playing politics though. He's like, I, he's looking out for himself. He doesn't care about justice. He doesn't care about justice. He doesn't care about truth. He doesn't care about any of that stuff. He's like, what's best for me? And if you have politicians who function out of that, they're not good politicians. They're not public servants, which is really what a politician is. They're a public servant, meaning they're supposed to serve the needs of the people. We flip that thing around to where it's like, well, they're, now they're like the boss. Well, I don't think that's how it was supposed to be set up. I think you're supposed to represent the people. There you go. Um, Felix is like, he's been set up by Rome to, well, to keep order and control there. And above all that stuff, he wants to keep the order and control, but he also wants to keep his job. Okay, so he's buying himself some time. He, uh, he goes ahead and he orders, um, verse 23, he ordered the officer to keep Paul in custody but to give him some freedom and allow his friends to visit him and take care of his needs. So he's like under arrest, but it's more of like house arrest. He can have friends come over and hang out and all that good stuff. A few days later, Felix came back with his wife, Drusilla. She's Jewish, all right? This is the third wife. This is number three, who he stole from another guy uh, who was Jewish. Sending for Paul, they listened as he told them about faith in Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus as he, respond, as he reasoned with them about righteousness, right living, righteousness, and self-control, yeah, I think he was, uh, you know, setting up his message specifically for these people who lack self-control. Um, quite obviously, Felix did. Self-control and the coming day of judgment. Felix became frightened. Go away for now, he replied, when it is convenient or when it is more convenient, I'll call for you again. He also hoped that Paul would bribe him. <laughs> so he sent for him quite often and talked with him, right? This is how corrupt this dude is. It, you can't take bribes. You can't take bribes, right? Even in Rome, they were like, hey, don't take bribes. But you're probably going to do it. But just don't do it, right? We'll make a rule, do what you want, but we'll make a rule. So he kept calling Paul back for an audience, and Paul's like, look, dude, here's what I'm going to talk to you about. I'm going to talk to you about Jesus, I'm going to talk to you about righteousness, I'm going to talk to you about self-control, and I'm going to talk to you about the coming judgment. Felix, you're unrighteous. You have no self-control. Judgment's coming, buddy. This frightened Felix, but he kept inviting him back because he's just hoping, like, well, maybe he'll just pay me some money. 
Maybe he'll just give me some money, or maybe some of his friends will pay me some money, and then this can all go away. Paul's like, I don't think so, man. You keep inviting me back, I'm just going to keep talking about Jesus. I don't, he probably didn't have any money anyways. But even if he did, he wasn't going to pay it. He's like, I'll take this audience, this audience of one or audience of two. I'll take that. And so that's what Paul did there in Caesarea. Uh, it's going to go on for about two years, it says. Uh, verse 27, after two years went by in this way, Felix was succeeded by uh, Perseus Festus. You can just call him Festus, right? And because Felix wanted to gain favor with the Jewish people, he left Paul in prison, right? So two years of house arrest. And Paul is speaking with uh, Felix and all this good stuff. But then when it all comes down, Felix, again, he's not a good leader or anything like that. Um, again, not a good leader. But Paul used every opportunity he had before him to, to, share, to share the gospel, sharing the gospel with this guy. Well, his corruption caught up with him and they booted him. And they, they put uh, Festus in place. Now, Festus was considered to be, he didn't rule for that long. Um, but he was considered to be far better than Felix ever was. And in fact, the next guy up wouldn't even compare to Festus either. But Paul's gaining all these audiences with these very important people, and he's using it. Jesus said, look, we're going to Rome, buddy. So every step along the way, what's Paul going to do? I'm just going to talk about Jesus. I'm just going to talk about Jesus. That's it. That's it. You know, I had a night of discouragement. He's going to have a, a, probably a, another night of discouragement, so to speak. I'm sure he would. But he's like, I'm just going to stay focused on him because I see him at the finish line. In fact, he's not even at the finish line. He's right, he's right with me, kind of carrying me through this entire race. So I'm just, going to keep, I'm just going to keep sharing about Jesus. That's what I'm going to do. And uh, the Jews don't want me in Jerusalem? Fine. Jesus wants me in Rome, so I'm going to go to Rome. And I'm going to share the gospel. But see, you can tell there, there's a, a difference that happens there from one day to the next when Paul is reminded of the fact that Jesus was right there with him. In the darkest of nights, Jesus shows up and is like, hey, good job. But we, let's keep going. Let's keep going. But Lord, I failed you. You didn't fail me. Lord, I didn't represent you like, I, like you planned. Yeah, like you planned. Doesn't mean the game's over. Still another quarter to go, Paul. Let's finish this thing out. Let's just keep going. Same thing he told to Paul is the same thing he's telling you guys and he's telling to me. Be of good courage. But you, no, be of good courage. Why? Because God sees past all the circumstances. He knows the end of your life. He knows it. So if he tells you to be of good courage, then I would say, name that and claim that. Be of good courage. Be encouraged. He will never leave you nor forsake you. So let's just keep running, guys. Let's keep running. The Lord Jesus loves you. Regardless of what your feelings may be communicating to you, regardless of what your circumstances may be indicating, the Lord Jesus, I can say with complete and all authority that's been invested to me that Jesus actually and absolutely loves you and cares about you more than you ever know, more than you will ever realize. So I hope you hear him whispering into your ear, be of good courage. Now let's go to Rome. Let's go to Rome.
He's with you. So, I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. I thank you for this, this word, Lord. I, Lord, I know that there's some hard things within the scripture. If we're honest, there's hard things within the scriptures when we go through it. Lord, when it tells us that we shouldn't speak evil against any ruler, um, Lord, that's, I, I get it. That's hard sometimes, Lord. That's hard sometimes. I mean, I understand. I understand when people get, when we get frustrated or when rulers that have been placed over us, Lord, and if we truly trust that you appoint leaders, we just don't understand it sometimes. So whether you have a corrupt high priest named Ananias, Lord, you got a corrupt official named Felix. Lord, I pray that, I, I just pray, Lord, that um, we, number one, we'd be praying for our leaders. And I get that's a hard thing too. Lord, there's, I, I pray for our current administration, administration right now, Lord. They seem like they've lost their heads. Um, Lord, I, I, just, I just pray. I pray for our nation. I just pray for our nation. I pray for... Oh, goodness, just all the, all the stuff that's going on within our, within our country right now. And, and man, Lord, what we need more than anything is, is repentance. We need repentance. The church needs to repent. I think believers, myself included, need to repent. Lord, I, I think our government needs to repent. We need revival to break out in this country, Lord. And so I, I don't... Lord, whatever feelings are towards anybody, Lord, I pray for salvation of our leaders. I pray that you would meet them on the road to Damascus. Whatever enemies there may be out there in this world, Lord, because I know this world is bigger than America. Whatever corrupt leaders there are within this world, I pray that the ones who have just uh, their focus is on the church and they want to destroy the church, I pray, Jesus, that you would meet them on their quote-unquote road to Damascus just like you did with Saul, and you turn him into the Apostle Paul. I pray that for all our global leaders right now. Lord, we know that the world's supposed to go this way to a certain extent, that eventually there will be a, a one, one leader who rises up above them all, Lord, and it's very anti-you and all that, Lord. I just pray today, though, if, if right now, Lord, Lord, that you would save Save the souls of, of our leaders, Lord. I, and we know what that means, Lord. For our babies being born, for injustice that, man, is, seems more prevalent today than it ever has been to a certain extent. So we just pray, pray that you would move within our country, within this world. Uh, I pray, Lord, that as believers that we would stay focused on you, Jesus. Um, Lord, any opportunity we have to share in front of maybe, maybe a politician or whoever it may be, I pray that we would share you with them, Jesus. That you would be our, our main message. We could just share your gospel with them, Lord, is what I would pray. You give us opportunity and you give us boldness. And so we pray, Lord, and even in the dark nights of discouragement, that you would, Lord, that we would hear you say to us, be of good courage. Be of good courage. So we thank you for that, that message that, Lord, it was, it was applied to a, a lady who had an issue of bleeding within her life for 12 years. It was applied to a bunch of fishermen on a boat thinking they were all going to die. It was applied to a paralytic man, Lord. You showed up in each and every one of their lives and you said, be of good courage. And I know you're still showing up today reminding us to be of good courage. So we thank you. May we embrace that today, Lord. 
Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. Thank you for raising from the dead. Thank you for loving us, Lord. Thank you for loving us, the unlovable, Lord. Thank you so much for doing for us what we could have never done for ourselves, Lord. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.